I went through two decades of Christianity without a single college class about what the Bible is. And especially if you're going to be basing your life around the Bible, you need to know these things because there are things that the church simply does not teach. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Will Thorpe. He is the brains behind the Instagram handle Heretical Theology. Will, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Doing well today, man. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm glad we got to connect. Thank you for saying yes to this and being a guest on the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking me. So before we dive into our conversation today, Will, how'd you get introduced to church? How'd you get introduced to faith? What's some of your spiritual background? Uh, childhood indoctrination is uh, has, would be the the classic example of how I got introduced. Perfect. My uh, my mother would probably disagree with that statement. They they wanted me to have more of a social life, and so they took me to Sunday school at the rural Methodist church down the down the alley. Actually, um, there was a big old cornfield in between myself and uh, or my house and the uh, the church I grew up uh, grew up in. Um, was saved at seven, according to my mother. Um, I don't really remember it very much, um, but uh, then I discovered another church um, while I was in middle school uh, that was actually having Wednesday services out of like a lecture room in the high school I was going to. And so I started going there. They had a really great youth group, so my parents were really supportive of it. Um, I was going there, and it was going there for about 15, 20 years, so I was, yeah, still a little over 15 years. Turns out it was a cult. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't really realize it at the time. Um, people who had left had call it a cult. I just thought that they were just being ridiculous. Um, so once we got out of, my wife and I then moved to Florida because um, we felt called to go to another church. Um, we had met that uh, met my brother down here in Melbourne, Florida, <clears throat> and uh, we visited his church. And we literally felt God calling us, "Hey, this is where I want you to serve." So we quit our jobs, moved a thousand miles away to. Uh, from Ohio to Florida to start serving at another church. And we didn't have any jobs lined up either, so that was fun. Uh, we didn't end up getting jobs, so that's good. And uh, yeah, that's a very quick snippet of my <laughs> uh, 20 years as a Christian. And with that sentence, 20 years as a Christian, I would imagine there's been a transition from that time to where you are now? Uh, just a little bit, yeah. So. The last five years was at a uh, the the church that we moved to was a at a mainstream mega mega church had ten thousand people over three campuses. It was a Calvary Chapel church. Um, it was really good for me uh, because I had, I didn't know it at the time, but I had it, it helped me deconstruct my fundamentalism into a of a more I guess more reasonable, more loving, safer version of evangelicalism. And I learned how to love people because uh, I thought I did, but I really didn't. And so I learned how to uh, essentially chill the crap out. <laughs> and not everything had to be a, a closed-fisted issue. Um, so I was kind of refreshing. Um, but even then, like I started progressing as a uh, become more, I guess, more liberal Christian. Um, I was mostly I was generally conservative. But I was more of a libertarian politically, and the 
the church's obsession with Trump kind of was eye-opening for me in, in 2016. And I, I realized that my ideals of what the church was, um, was not quite reality. I knew there was a lot of people who were honestly two-toed to the Republican line because of evangelical beliefs. But that was a different case of Trump uh, for various different issues, <laughs> very different reasons. And uh, so I made some enemies. Uh, I had to have a few people question uh, my faith and question my reasoning for you know not supporting Trump and not towing the line. And uh, that kind of started a, a nice little, uh, uh, I guess what you would call it, a, a path of trying to figure out what I believed and why and what the church was and ended up learning a little bit more about textual criticism and the, and the history of the Bible. And next thing I know, I started questioning a lot of other things and became a very liberal Christian or progressive Christian. And then eventually uh, in 2019, that transitioned to me uh, becoming agnostic and then an atheist by the end of the year. With that framework, it sort of sets up where we're headed today on our conversation. And thank you for sharing that, Will. Uh, but it's interesting that that progression is a common progression for a lot of people who can't seem to parse uh, what they're seeing within the Bible with what we're experiencing within culture. And it does lead to that question of the historical accuracy of the Bible and the gospel accounts. Uh, I think this is something that many Christians never really want to consider too in-depth for fear of taking themselves out of the faith, much like your journey and, and other journeys that I've, I've had conversations with. Was it more just the political spectrum that was sort of unraveling for you, or was this always sort of in the back of your mind, like, maybe this isn't what I think it is? Yeah, it wasn't always, it wasn't just the, the political aspects. Um, my, my, my politics have always transitioned um, very fluid. I was, hard, I was a hardcore right-wing ditto head um, at my fundamentalist church. Um, watch, I mean, it was the church and, and talk, talk news, uh, talk radios and Fox news. Like that was, that was my three sources of information, um, growing up as a, as a high school and college kid. Um, but, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't just Trump. My, my, uh, my wife was having a little bit of crisis of faith as well. And so that definitely affected me. Um, so I was trying to understand her and, and, and be a, a good loving husband for her. Um, but. I think it was also because I ended up getting into a new environment. I had always worked for very small companies as a uh, as a graphic designer. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, but then when I got a new job down here in Florida, I actually started working for a multi billion dollar tech defense company, and there was a legitimately large office with a lot of different people and people you spend forty hours uh, a week with, and uh, you know they introduced me some things like I learned that you know people who are not religious are not complete assholes, which is refreshing. I learned that um, maybe it was me who was the one who was a little bit crazy and a little bit over the top, so I learned how to chill out a bit. And um, I learned uh, all about these different podcasts and YouTube channels. Like, uh, So really, Joe Rogan, to be quite honest, had a huge effect on my faith just because of all the different people and voices he has on his podcast. Like, I thought he was batshit crazy, but he was so interesting. And... Um, so he, when he had a he had a gentleman uh, named Sam Harris on on this podcast, I'd never heard of Sam Harris before. So that was that was eye opening to hear about this neuro this neuroscientist and atheist speak so openly about religion and, and science and things like that was really fascinating. So then I started listening to his podcast, 
and then he had a guy named Bart uh, Bart Ehrman on, and that's why I had to hit the bricks a little bit because Bart Ehrman is a textual critic and very popular among the uh, deconstructing world and atheist world, and he has a story very similar to mine where he was a fundamentalist evangelical Christian and then now he's an atheist, and so he was saying a lot of things uh, on Harris's podcast. So I'm like, well, that's not true. That's that's BS. That's not correct because I knew the Bible very very well. Or at least I thought I did. I knew it from a very strict theological viewpoint and i knew all the other theological viewpoints um but i didn't really know it historically or textually so that's that's key and so i went to go learn more about bart and then i had to stop and so i never really understood textual criticism that well i've heard of it but i just i believe that the bible was a word of god and that's all of it so textual criticism to me was kind of like a, a useless endeavor so I learned uh, about a guy named Daniel Wallace because as a good Christian, I wanted to hear a Christian perspective on textual criticism. So that was, that was what the Christian, what Christians should do, right? You don't want to listen to atheists. You want to get the Christian perspective. Well, I listened to a lecture by Daniel Wallace. And the first thing that he gave a really long intro and in is one of his lectures, which I highly recommend. And um, I, you can just Google Daniel uh, go uh, on YouTube and search Daniel Wallace. It's probably one of the first things that comes up after the Ehrman uh, debates. And, uh, you know, he concludes his intro by saying, is the Bible the word of God As or the mind of God? He says, absolutely not. And my heart just sank. I'm like, what? This, this is a Christian who's an expert in this field and he's saying this. And uh, so then he gets into all these details about how it's pretty reliable, but it's not perfect. I'm like, okay, that's, I guess that's fair. And then now I, I really had to reconcile that with the Bible being the perfect word of God versus just being okay. And so then I watched the debate with him and uh, Bart Ehrman, and it was really challenging for me because my faith really rested on the foundation of the Bible and uh, it basically being true because I was a pursuer of truth and I believe I had the truth and now that truth is coming into question. cut this out but or maybe i won't uh that podcast episode with harris and ermin was the catalyst for this show oh really yeah because it was it, for it, i had the exact same experience that you did where i was completely blown away and i got to the end of it i didn't know who ermin was but i get to the end of it and he says and i'm an atheist and i was just floored that somebody could skate circles around me biblically and not have the same belief and I just thought there there needs to be a way that the church gets educated by people who are not in the pulpit. Uh, and so that was one of the f first steps of what would become Dismantle. That's awesome. So, That's awesome to hear. Yeah, that was that was a, a I need to listen to the episode again. Same here. Yeah, and we'll and we'll link that in the uh, in the show notes. But going along the lines of what you were saying, Will, you know, does the Bible actually claim to be uniquely inspired by God? Is there any evidence other than the Bible saying it that this is the divinely inspired word of God? Because otherwise, if, it, if it's not, then, you know, if we're honest, if there's an intellectual honesty, we're basically saying it is because it says it is. And we would never do that with pretty much anything else. I guess it depends upon one standard for what a supposed word of God would actually look like. Um, that was actually 
one of the, one of the many critical questions I had to ask myself is, okay, if something was to be the word of God, what would it actually look like? Would it, would this God only have it be understandable by the culture it was written for, or would it be possible for this God to make it so multifaceted that it would make sense in any culture? Um, I know, unfortunately, today, living in the culture that we live in, there's a lot of stuff that is just not relevant anymore, I know, and especially when you get into a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. Um, you know, the Old Testament has people speaking as if God was speaking uh, on their, or as if they were speaking on God's behalf. Like, so, so many of the prophecies, like, thus says the Lord, you know, insert whatever quote you want to quote from, uh, you know, from the Old Testament. And so, in that sense, you know, the Bible does actually claim that, hey, this is God, the word of God speaking. Now, of course, if we meet some guy on the road who says, I have a message for you from God, we're going to take that with a grain of salt. Okay. And then obviously different, different people with a different uh, background beliefs will, will, will take that with a different grain of salt. Um, I would have been skeptical as a Christian, but I was still at least entertain them. Um, now I'm going to be like, which God are you representing? <laughs> you know, so, and you can get crazy ridiculous with it. And, and you kind of hit on it. Um, you're talking about Second Timothy uh, 3.16, I believe, where Paul says, you know, all scripture is, prof- or is inspired by, what was it? I used to have memorized. So it was like a second verse I memorized. It was all, all scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, correction, and training, righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Hey, there we go. I may have gotten a couple words wrong, but. That indoctrination from over 10 years ago is still stuck in there. Yeah, close enough. And uh, so there is that. But of course, the irony of that verse is that that verse is a forgery. It's not even written by Paul. Um, that's very, pretty much unanimous among all non-Christian scholars and even some Christian scholars. Like It's just laughable to think that Paul actually wrote that. So the irony there is, is hilarious. Um, but, you know, aside from that, there's, you know, as an atheist, I still question um, any evidence that there, that, that there is any evidence for a God, let alone evidence for a supposed word of God. So I can't really answer that question. Um, but if we're, if we're looking at what a supposed word of God look like, I think we need to have a much higher standard than what has been given to us uh, via the Bible or the Quran or any other holy text. Now, one of the things that comes up a lot when people are deconstructing the authority of the Bible is contradictions. Uh, You know, if you were to approach anything with 40-plus different authors over the span of years that the Bible claims to have been written, there would obviously be mistakes here and there. But this claim that there are zero contradictions is one that comes up over and over and over again. What are your thoughts on that? Because, at least for me, I see instances even just within the four Gospels where facts don't align. Yeah, in the Gospels, we're going to find the most contradictions because they are, they're essentially four books telling the same story, with the exception of, of John, which kind of goes off the rails a little bit, uh, but still essentially the same story. Um, so it's, it's easy to, to find those contradictions because, one, they're all right next to each other. And you can literally read what we call a hor- read, hor- reading horizontally. That's something that Ehrman taught me, is reading Instead of reading one gospel, the next gospel, and the next gospel, and then remembering the story that you just read in the previous gospel, like, yeah, this is pretty much what it says. But when you actually read, take all four stories, put them right beside each other, then it becomes super apparent that there are definitely issues here. 
And I'm not sure that a lot of Christians have done that. Like I was a Christian for uh, 20 years before I even started doing that. And so that's, that's pretty telling on how, you know, how much I thought I knew about the Bible, but was still kind of willfully ignorant on actually applying some criticism to it. Um, a really good example of a contradiction. Well, let's, let's back up a little bit. When someone says that there are no contradictions, the first thing you need to do is qualify what they mean by a contradiction. And this is something that, again, Ehrman, I know I'm referencing Ehrman a lot, but um, he, when he gives these lectures, especially when he's talking to Christians, which he does fairly often, he's like, now, you can say these aren't contradictions, but they can't be reconciled. They can't both be true. So I call that a contradiction. Is it saying one is white and one is black? No. Now, if a contradiction is only something that's white, but then they're saying it's black, if that's the only way they, they want to label a contradiction, then, then, then fine. I, th I think that's a very low standard. Um, so a good example would be um, the one I love to go to because it's hilarious because it shows how disingenuous Matthew is, the, the author Matthew is, was uh, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. In Matthew, he has Jesus riding in on a colt and a donkey. Okay. It's very subtle, but he literally, but if you read it, it's, 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 it's obvious. He, he is literally striding two, two animals, and there was two animals that he had the disciple go and get, and he comes in on two animals. Other gospels, it's just one animal, one donkey. Okay. I call that a contradiction. There cannot be both one animal and two animals. And the reason why Matthew does it, is because he doesn't understand uh, poetic prophecy because he's quoting. I want to say Zechariah, but I think I'm. I, I can't really remember. It might have been Isaiah. Something from one of the prophecies from the Old Testament that uh, is a fourth prophecy of the coming Messiah. And the language uses uh, poetic language to describe the animal in two different ways, but it's still one animal. And so the author in the Old Testament calls it a donkey and a colt. Matthew, you know, it could be an issue because he was only reading the Septuagint. Um, Matthew doesn't realize that it's poetic, and he assumes that it's actually two animals. And so to fulfill that prophecy, he has Jesus writing in on two animals. Their Gospels, Mark, John, and Luke, are like, yeah, no, it was one animal. And they're not trying to force in a prophecy like Matthew tried. So that, to me, is a perfect example of a contradiction. Now, I think, at least from my experience, something I never really thought about was how we got this physical or digital compiled book filled with 66 books. There was a council, um, and some books were left out, others included. Can you chat a little bit about the process of putting the Bible together? Yes, I actually made a post about this in preparation of this question because I realized I didn't know as much about it as I thought I'd actually learn a lot of uh, cool stuff researching this. Um, so first things first, all right, this is specifically for the atheists. Okay. Because a lot of atheists like to promote this and it's complete bullshit. The council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the, uh, assembly, the canon of the Bible, nothing, nothing at all. Okay. So there's that the council of Nicaea was there to, um, well, one to create the Nicaean creed, but it was also to, um, attack the idea of, of Arianism because there was a guy named Arius who thought that Jesus was the son of God, not equal to God, but was still the son of God. And there was a lot of other people who believed that Jesus was God. And Constantine was like, 
I don't care which one it is. I just need you all to get together and figure out which one's correct. And that's what they did at that council. And it was essentially unanimous. There was a couple of people who did not agree. And those who did not agree, uh, did not agree, including Arius, were exiled. And so when getting exiled from, you know, uh, by your emperor is the other alternative to agreeing with doctrine, you're probably just going to go ahead and fall in line. That's, let's just face it, that's probably what they did. And so that's how Jesus became God, <laughs> uh, or equal to God, or officially, at least. Uh, but as far as the, uh, how the Bible was compiled, it happened organically over time, and it started as early as the mid-2nd century. Um, it was Arrhenius, and, um, and so he had you know, the, this logic that there was four winds, four corners of the earth, and so there should be four Gospels. And, and that's literally how he justified these four Gospels. But there was also, uh, I can't remember how many Gospels there were, but there was, there was dozens of Gospels at the time. Like there was a Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Peter. Everyone had a Gospel, right? Um, and so it was getting kind of confusing. And he, th and he uh, thought that we need to figure out which ones are correct. Now, he did this because of a dude named Marcion. Marcion was a kind of like a, a patron of the church. He was very wealthy. And he was a huge supporter of Paul very anti-Semitic as well. And so he had actually created his own gospel, um, which is why Iranius kind of had to step in and be like, no, let's, let's put this on pause because Iranius's gospel, uh, I'm sorry, because of Marcion's gospel dismissed the old Testament entirely. He, he believed that the old Testament God was a demiurge was like a base God, a material God. And that Jesus represented a higher God. Uh, the one true God that we should worship. Um, as you can imagine, the, the church wasn't really keen on that. And that's when um, Irina steps in and tells that Marcion's gospel, which contained of a highly edited version of Luke and all of Paul's, uh, uh, I think it was all of Paul's, uh, ten, it was 11 or it was either nine or nine or 10 letters of Paul. And so that's when Irina steps in, like, no, we got these four gospels and these, and these will work out well. So fast forward a hundred years and or a couple hundred years, and then there's this dude uh, who was a bishop of Alexandria, and he was he was a troublemaker. He was exiled five different times, <clears throat> and he wrote a letter to his church uh, saying what he believes the uh, twenty seven books of the of the New Testament should be, and that, and he was also on the council in Nicaea too, uh, by the way. And so then that stuck. That list kind of stuck. And it's possible that these these uh, these twenty seven were already pretty safe. Um, and so he was just trying to clarify which ones were actually he believed were accurate because there still wasn't any, any official New Testament text. And then at the Council of Rome, so at the Council of Rome, uh, just before four hundred A.D. was when the actual New Testament and Old Testament canon was established. So it wouldn't be until four hundred years later. And that was actually scribed by a dude named St. Jerome. And um, that was finished in around 405 AD. So that's how we actually got it. Yeah, not as simple as everybody thinks. Definitely not. 
And we also have this problem, Will, with interpretation, you know, how we put into practice what the Bible says. And, and, and that idea has been wildly destructive over the centuries with things like murder and slavery and disposition of lands and, you know, all these interpretations of Scripture being the fuel for that. Do you think that the Bible should inform the way we live if we can't actually agree on one central interpretation? Um, you know, the Living in the 21st century, it kind of terrifies me to think that there are people who are using it as a way to live their life. Um, and even then, like when people say that they use the Bible, you know, to justify the morality, like it's not entirely true. Um, they are still applying reason. Like I use reason, you know, in comparison to the Bible for to justify mor my morality. Um, but we we know that we know that slavery is wrong. It, there, slavery is prolific throughout the Old Testament. It wasn't shunned upon in the New Testament. Um, Paul tells people, hey, if you're a slave, continue being a slave, just be a good slave. And honestly, we, we, we know that to not be a good thing. So when people say that they're living a, 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 a moral life or a life based upon the Bible, it's, it's that plus some sort of inert... Uh, not sorry, not in there, but innate morality built within them that they that they have this sense of right and wrong, and oftentimes, like I would have said that I was applying that to the Bible. I'm sorry, that I was applying the Bible to that reasoning and kind of filtering it. But looking back on it now, I was like, no, I was the Bible was actually rubbing up against what I knew to be right and wrong, and because I had faith in the Bible, I had faith in God, and if this is God's word, then clearly i need to understand it and understand what he really meant and and you can go down a really dark rabbit hole that uh <laughs> could lead you in a very destructive place <laughs> as a christian yeah for sure and you know will as we wrap up our time I don't think anybody would disagree necessarily that the Bible has complexity. Whether they agree with your perspective and thoughts on it, I doubt anybody would disagree with the premise that this is a complex book, and at best, it's got a difficult history. As an atheist, what would you recommend to the church to do as a first step to better engage with the complexities of the book that we, that we hold central to our belief? Yeah, if, and this is something that uh, no, it's a good question because it's something that I'm really trying to encourage Christians to do, and that is to get a historical and textual understanding of what the Bible actually is. Um, you know, again, I, I went through two decades of Christianity without a single college class about what the Bible is, and I'm, not that college classes are end all be all, but these are things that is basically Bible, literally Bible 101 that every christian should probably know or every christian every christian should know period and especially if you're going to be basing your life <clears throat> around the bible you need to know these things you at least need to know all the variables because there are things that the church simply does not teach whether they do it out of ignorance or whether they do it intentionally they need to be aware of the history and basic textual criticism of what the bible is and what is not now my, my quote that I like to tell people a lot, and, and it's kind of how I run my page now, is that uh, theology without history is fantasy. And what I mean by that is you can come up with any sort of theological assertion based upon anything. 
But if it's, there's not a historical basis for it, then you're literally just making crap up. And if that's what you want to do, then, then fine, then, then do that. Um, don't expect me or anyone who tries to use sound reason to go along with it, though. And when we look at what the Bible actually is, especially the Gospels, we, we realize that it is nowhere near historical as what it, uh, we are led to believe by the church. And of course, there's apologists uh, like William Lake Craig or uh, Michael Kona who will tell us, yeah, the Bibles are historical or reliable. And then we're going to have Christians who are just as critical of the Bible say, no, they're, they're not historical or reliable. These, these are mythical narratives. And these are people who are simply trying to express themselves and what they believed in a specific sort of way. Um, so, like, for example, Yale has free online classes that you could take. It's called Open Yale Courses. And in that college course, and they're also available on YouTube, but in those courses, there is an Old Testament course and a New Testament course. There are like 20 plus 45 minute classes. So it takes some time. But if you're going to be basing your life upon the Bible, it is essential that you at least hear the perspective from these scholars and professors who know what they're talking about. And then ask yourself, when was the last time you heard that taught in a church or any church? That should concern us. And that is why I want churches to start doing, to actually put theology on pause and just look at the history of what the Bible actually says. And I think that will be a much more honest approach. It'll be a safer approach. And it will allow Christians to have a much more uh, honest faith. Because if you can look at that history and then still say, you know what, I still believe in God. I still believe Jesus did this, 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 and this, and fantastic. Okay, that's, it's your faith. It's your choice. But churches are not giving them the opportunity. And there are so many other variables that the church is either, again, intentionally or ignorantly withholding from their church members, and it needs to stop. Those are great thoughts, man. Thank you. And, and thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Tell us a little bit about your Instagram content and where people can connect with you. Yeah, thanks again. Uh, it, was, it was great to be on here. Um, I don't really do much besides Instagram because uh, it's pretty safe. And this, well, face, I, I kind of like Instagram. It's, it's a great algorithm, and we got a great network of deconstructing Christians on there. But I can... Uh, I can be found at heretical underscore theology on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook, but not really active on there. So basically whatever I post on Instagram just gets shoved onto Facebook. Um, yeah, if you have any questions, just uh, shoot me a, a DM on Instagram and uh, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. It's great, man. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. This is great. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. You can find us on Instagram at dismantlepod or shoot us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. You can find all of the information listed in this episode in our show notes as well. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. 